It is Tuesday, October 10th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, a growing and changing city means growing and changing parks. So when you have a park that's old like this, uh, you know, as you go along, you're sometimes you get to a point where you need to do another master plan because things change, um, you know, society changes. Plus, Neil Schusterman enjoys exploring new ideas in his YA novels. I think it forces us to have to grow. Uh, I think as long as we're in our comfort zone, we we don't break out of it. We don't do we don't learn new things. We don't try new things. And a 2020 career twist that led to compost. And honestly, I think I just wanted to do something more and better for the world. I think we all have a lot of the same visions. First, the news from NPR. KUAF is supported by those who listen and by Groundwork, workforce housing for Northwest Arkansas. Groundwork aims to create a variety of housing options in mixed-income neighborhoods for the region's workers and their families. More at groundworknwa.org. The Walmart Amp welcomes 17-time Grammy Award winner Sting on his My Songs Tour October 12th. Performing songs from his career as a solo artist along with the chart-topping hits that brought him fame with the police, including Fields of Gold, Roxanne, Message in a Bottle, and many more. Tickets at amptickets.com. This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, October 10th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Later this hour, how a decision to switch careers led to the formation of Ozark Compost and Swap. We'll hear a portion of the latest episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas with Randy Wilburn in our second half hour. When we talk about the growth of Northwest Arkansas, the usual suspects are often brought up. Housing, infrastructure, healthcare, but a growing region also needs community parks to grow and adapt as well. Ozarks at Large's Jack Travis reports. Nature and development are currently colliding at Fayetteville's Walker Park. Walker Park has offered community members in Fayetteville natural respite for nearly 75 years. Visitors can now see it's grown in that time. In fact, Walker Park is Fayetteville's largest community park and people take full advantage. The city defines a community park as a green space in a neighborhood with multiple attractions and features. On any sunny day, you can see kids darting through streams of water on the park's splash pad, cyclists and runners cruising down the Razorback Greenway, or murals brightening once plain basketball courts and concrete walls. Park Planning Superintendent Ted Jack says the city has carefully planned and implemented Walker Park's growth over the years. What's more, the park is perpetually changing. The city is always looking to improve its green spaces. The city of Fayetteville began a new master planning process for the park earlier this year, and Jack says planners didn't start from scratch. So when you have a park that's old like this, uh, you know, as you go along, you're sometimes you get to a point where you need to do another master plan because things change, um, you know, society changes. Jack says they reached that point roughly a year and a half ago. And it was a, to take a comprehensive look at the park. You know, there's been a tremendous amount of change around the park. Uh, things going on with the, the housing is really um, undergoing change. So a lot of demographic change to the city. And this is one of the five community parks that we have. The community parks are the ones where we really get a lot of 
a lot of use and so forth. They're usually close to home and have a lot of different things people can do. So you want to make sure you get these parks, you know, planned well so they can bring maximum benefit. The city held three different public meetings so citizens could have influence over their park's future before the city would even begin implementing the official master plan. The first one was kind of a brainstorming meeting. It was, uh, come tell us the kind of things you'd like to see in the park. And let's kind of brainstorm ideas together. Park planners and private consultants generated two potential master plans for Walker Park after brainstorming with the community. Then, they submitted those for community feedback. People had a chance to propose the most important attractions and features they wanted to see. Many different additions were proposed due to the park's large size. Popular suggestions included adding a dog park, improving the skate park, and restoring Spout Spring Branch Tributary Waterway. Planners had meetings with the area's unhoused population in order to learn how to best serve their needs. Jack says this process is standard and necessary to maximize what communities gain from their local green spaces. You really need to understand what the community wants and think about it not just from this park's perspective, but how all the pieces of the other parks fit together. So, um, and without that public input and that public understanding, it'd be easy for you to kind of, you know, miss the target a bit and not be as, not, not aim quite as well as you can with all that public feedback. Joshua Jowers was out at Walker Park practicing his putts at the park's disc golf course. He's a member of the University of Arkansas disc golf club team, and he says he often finds himself here just to practice. He says over the past few months, the city has already improved the course exponentially. I mean, the main thing is they've cleared out a lot of the trees out there, so the course is just a lot more fun to play, and it's a lot easier to keep track of the discs. Yeah, right. Is yeah. that a like? Is that a thing that you encounter a lot, losing the discs? Um, not out here so much anymore, but some other course in the area where it's heavily wooded off of the fairways, it happens a lot. According to the city of Fayetteville, funding for developments at Walker Park come from the Park Improvement Bond, which was approved by Fayetteville residents in early 2019. The city released its officially adopted master plan on September 6th, and you can view it now by visiting fayetteville-ar.gov. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jack Travis. The City Cemetery in Eureka Springs will be the site for the 13th annual Voices from the Silent City Later this month, visitors will meet actors portraying past residents of the city who will share the stories of Eureka's past. This year's cemetery tours begin Thursday night, the 19th at 530, and the final night is Saturday, the 28th. You can learn more by searching for Voices from Eureka Springs, Silent City on Facebook. And ahead on our show, writer Neil Schusterman says he loves getting out of his comfort zone. I think it forces us to have to grow. Uh, I think as long as we're in our comfort zone, we we don't break out of it. We don't do we don't learn new things. We don't try new things. He has collected several awards for his YA novels, including the 2015 National Book Award for Young People's Literature for his novel Challenger Deep. He'll be at the Fayetteville Public Library one week from tonight as part of the 2023 True Lit Festival. We'll talk with him in about six minutes on the latest episode of Points of Departure, tackling. 
capitalism. Could you imagine Columbus sailing not to try to gain riches, but just to see what there is out there? Then the encounter wouldn't have been to enslave people when he got there, but to like learn from them. How capitalism shapes our mind, our world, and our future. That's on the next Points of Departure. Listen with your podcast app or at KUAF.com. You can listen to Points of Departure at KUAF.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders is ordering flags to be flown at half-staff today through Sunset Friday. The governor's office issued the order in response to the violence in Israel. A statement from the governor's office says the order is to show the state's complete solidarity with the Israeli cause. Temple Shalom in Fayetteville is working alongside the Jewish Federation of Arkansas to provide emergency aid to Israel. Other organizations providing aid during this time include Doctors Without Borders, the International Committee of Red Cross, and the New Israel Fund. University of Arkansas Chancellor Charles Robinson will deliver the annual State of the University Address tomorrow on campus. Other comments at the 10 a.m. event will be made by Vice Chancellors for Academic Affairs, Admissions, and Research and Innovation. The address will be in the Faulkner Performing Arts Center and streamed live on the U of A's YouTube channel. The Northwest Arkansas National Airport is offering a new guest pass program that allows people to access airport terminals without having a flight to catch. Olivia Moore is the public information officer for XNA and says the free pass is available for anyone. They'll go to the kiosk that is by baggage claim in our lobby and they'll have to bring their ID or passport, answer some questions, and it's the same security process as obtaining a boarding pass. After that, they'll have to go through security and then they are free to enjoy our amenities. We have a coffee robot that's going to be operational soon. Uh, They could say hello or goodbye to a loved one. If they have a child that is flying solo, they can walk up to the gate with them. She says registration is managed through the TSA Secure Flight System, which also provides background checks on passengers flying out of XNA. The day pass allows people to access shops and restaurants within the airport and lets non-travelers spend some more time with family or loved ones while they wait to board their plane. We're trying to bring back connectivity to the airport because at the end of the day, it's either saying hello or goodbye to your loved ones. And that is an emotional process. The first people that used the guest pass, they surprised their daughter who is coming home from college. She didn't know that they were going to be waiting at the gate and not downstairs or right past security. So when she got off of the plane and she saw her parents there, uh, it was a really emotional and wonderful experience. Moore says the guest pass is one part of XNA's expansion plan, which includes construction of a second terminal concourse and updated facilities. So we are in the midst of our terminal modernization project. It is a project that is going to kind of give the airport a facelift and also renew some of these amenities to make flying just a little bit more efficient. That expansion is expected to be completed by March 2025. The Arkansas Department of Transportation is coordinating with the Oklahoma Department of Transportation to host another round of public meetings to discuss the conversion of Highway 412 into an interstate highway.
The meeting will be held October 19th from 4 to 7 p.m. on the campus of John Brown University in Salem Springs. The plan is part of the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure law that passed in 2021. Highway 412 is being considered a high-priority corridor, and the two state transportation departments are working together to complete an engineering study of the highway. A link to the meeting will be available on our website, ozarksatlarge.com. Arkansas health officials are investigating after the state's first case of locally acquired malaria was reported last week. The Arkansas Department of Health reported a resident of Saline County had contracted the disease but has since been discharged from the hospital. Dr. Naveen Patil is Deputy State Health Officer and Medical Director of Infectious Diseases at the Health Department. He says they've been testing mosquitoes for the malaria parasite. We are also working with uh, hospitals and medical providers to figure out what testing abilities they have uh, in case uh, there is a suspected case and what help they would need. And also at the same time, whether these institutions or providers or clinics have medications that are available at their disposable uh, in case they we do find more cases. Patil says it's hard to say whether more cases of the disease will arise in Arkansas, though cooler weather will help to curtail the mosquito population. He urges Arkansans to wear appropriate clothing outdoors, use bug spray, and avoid stagnant water in order to limit exposure to mosquito bites. The Alice L. Walton School of Medicine has selected locally owned Ozark Green Roofs to construct a two-acre green roof for their new campus in Bentonville. It will be the largest green roof in Arkansas. Green roofs are constructed of topsoil layers that act simultaneously as a waterproof membrane and planter for native trees, shrubs, perennials, and even water features. Ozark Green Roofs has completed numerous projects throughout Northwest Arkansas, including roofs the Fayetteville Public Library, First National Bank of NWA, and the University of Arkansas's Adohi Residence Hall. Ozark Natural Foods Co-op is hosting a front porch session Thursday from 7 to 9 p.m. on the patio located off North College Avenue and Lafayette Street in Fayetteville. The front porch sessions are a celebration of different communities to learn more about what it means to be a member, the cooperative business model, the co-op's community involvement, and how it differs from many corporations. One Ounce Jig will be playing a 90-minute set for the session at 7. The event will have Fossil Cove samples, Subaru swag, and more. Doors open at 7 p.m. For more information, you can find details on Eventbrite. And a longtime Springdale restaurant is coming back months after closing. Talk Business and Politics reports Tom and Robin Lundstrom are planning to reopen AQ Chicken. The restaurant closed in March after serving customers for more than 70 years. Talk Business reports the Lundstroms purchased the rights to the restaurant name, recipes, and branding. The renewed AQ Chicken will be located along North 48th and the Elm Springs Road exit near I-49. The target opening date is 2025. This is Ozarks at Large. Neil Schusterman's novels, intended primarily for a young adult audience, traverse uncommon ground. The books in his Scythe series tackle the complications brought by the elimination of disease. Roxy personifies drugs as godlike partiers seeking victims, including that book's human protagonists. He was awarded the 2015 National Book Award for Young People's Literature for his novel Challenger Deep, 
which addresses mental illness. He'll be at the Fayetteville Public Library one week from tonight, the 17th, as part of the annual True Lit Festival. I recently caught up with him on Zoom while he was speaking in Zurich, and I asked him about advice he's made about writing and about life. He says, find your comfort zone, then leave it. I think it forces us to have to grow. Uh, I think as long as we're in our comfort zone, we we don't break out of it. We don't do we don't learn new things. We don't try new things. It's only when we are putting ourselves out there that we start to change, that we start to uh, see things from new perspectives, that we start to grow as human beings. Uh, I'm I feel like I'm always putting myself out of my comfort zone, and my comfort zone has become being out of my comfort zone, which can be very stressful, but. It's also it's also very rewarding. When you say you put yourself out of your comfort zone, does that mean as a writer? Yes, uh, in in all different ways. Uh, I I always say that the, the stories that that I that I can't stop thinking about, uh, and the ones that scare me are the ones that I feel like I have to write. And by when I say scare, I mean stories that I look at it and I say, "Oh, I can't do that." <laughs> or I, I'm just not a good enough writer to be able to tackle that. Whenever I get scared by a, by either the subject matter of a story or if I think a story is just too difficult to tell, those end up being the stories that I'm most passionate about wanting to tell. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because many of your stories take the reader out of a comfort zone. I'm thinking Scythe because... Here you you present us with a utopia in in the future where illness is gone and death is gone. But we find out that that isn't utopia at all. And I don't think we want to think about utopia not being utopia. (laughs) Well, the the idea behind Scythe was to rather than tell a dystopian story and rather than tell a utopian story, I wanted to tell an anti-dystopian story, if that that makes sense. The idea was rather than telling a story about what happens when the world goes wrong, I wanted to show the consequences of the world going right and us achieving the things that we legitimately want to achieve and realizing that when we do, there will be consequences to that. How will we deal with those consequences? And I tried to do it in the least dystopian way as possible. But still, it's not a utopia because utopia can't exist. Right. And and in the, the series, if you don't die, we have limited resources still. It reminds me of stories I would read as a as a young person about being immortal. And right, we never want to die. But if you're immortal, you see all your friends die and, and you still might age and there are complications. In Scythe, there are complications. And we have protagonists who have an unenviable job of taking care of that. I don't want to give too much away, but how did you come up with the concept of of people, young people learning how to take people out? End life. End life, <laughs> yes. Um, it really started with trying to figure out, in a world where we live forever, but where we've stolen death from nature and we're left holding it, people will still have to die. We're going to have to you know, mediate that. We're going to have to try to, f- to figure out how to choose who lives and who dies. And the goal was to come up with the least dystopian way of doing that. You know, the computers could do it. No, that's dystopian because then it's the it's the evil AI. Didn't want that. You know, the government could decide, which is probably the most dystopian idea of all. 
And then I thought, you know, in a perfect world, the Jedi would decide. Hmm. <laughs> and so I decided to tell a story about the Jedi of death. And of course, Jedi take on, you know, their Padawans, they take on their, uh, their apprentices. And so I sort of followed that as the model for, for Scythe. And so these two teenagers are taken on as apprentices and have to learn the art of killing with love and compassion. When you pitch a series like Scythe or, or, or a book like Roxy, which has siblings that are dealing with drugs and addiction, and then you personify the drugs as well, do you ever have a publisher or someone say to you, mm, no, that's a little dark? I, I used to. Mm. Uh, I think that stopped with Unwind. Yeah. Uh, when the publisher, when I, when I, I remember when I pitched Unwind, which is, you know, a, the story is teenagers can be, that are unwanted can be used for their body parts. But the rule is 100% of them has to be used in transplants. So it poses the question of 100% of you is alive, but divided. Can you be said in some way to still be alive? Where is your consciousness if your body is alive and divided? And I pitched the idea to my publisher. And I remember his reaction was, I have no idea how you're going to do that. I have no idea how you're going to write this story, but I trust that you will. And after that, I, I always had the trust of the publisher. So if I would come back with something that seemed outlandish, that seemed, you know, they, they couldn't figure out how it would work, they trusted me. And I don't take that trust lightly. And when, when I turn something in, I always, you know, I want to make sure that the story itself and the the questions that the story poses and and, uh, and the the basic uh, theme of the story is is worthwhile. You know, I mean, it, it, Scythe is not a story about people whose job it is to kill other people. Right. It's, it's it's a story about our society and the choices we make and and the consequences of getting the things that we want. So I try to elevate it a, a little bit above what uh, you know what what you might think the story would be. Yeah, that is. I can't imagine the hard work because you know the pitch or the one sheet. A lot of us can come up with, "Hey, what if the story was this?" Oh, that sounds like a great concept, and then you can don't have to do anything else because you've come up with the idea. I imagine the hard work between that initial nugget of an idea. Oh, this is novel. This is different. But then putting it on paper. So that we believe it, I can't imagine what that takes from you. It's a challenge, uh, but that's that's what I like. I like being challenged. Uh, like I, I, the the book that's coming out next was one of those types of things where I scared myself when I thought of it, uh, and it was uh, it's it's a, a graphic novel about the Holocaust, but told as a fantasy. How do you juxtapose the Holocaust with with something as as uh, as light as a fantasy, and trying to figure out how to do that, I thought I, when I first thought of this idea, I thought I I don't know if I can do it, but I it, I, it ma made me want to try, uh, and so just just like with Scythe, when I when I when I got the idea, I thought how am I going to make this work? How am I going to make this world not just believable but poignant? And that is that is the challenge. That's where that's where all of the work is. And tell, telling the story is is easier than making the story worth telling. Mm. I'm talking with Neil Schusterman. He'll be at uh, the True Lit Fe True Lit Festival at the Fayetteville Public Library. 
your Roxy was written with your son, correct? Yes, my son Jared. Yes. So what was the process like for you there? Uh, well, working with Jared has been fantastic. This, this Roxy was the second book that I did with him. The first was called Dry. And I think he was, how old was he, 28 when we sat down to write Dry? And uh, he's very talented. And we worked really well together. And it became a bonding experience. So that, uh, you know, there were times when we would have, you know, father-son stuff going on. But it always seemed whenever we sat down to write, all that went away and it was professional. It was uh, a, a real bonding experience between us. And so we decided we would do it again and work on Roxy. And Roxy was, uh, just like all, all of them, a challenge. The idea of telling a, a story about drug addiction from a fresh point of view that we hadn't seen. Because, I mean, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of stories about addiction. How do you tell it uniquely? And then together we were talking about it and we thought, well, what do the drugs think about this? And then I said, well, what if the drugs are like the Greek gods? They, they're these individuals, these personified beings that live in this endless party in the sky. And they come down to earth to mess with us. Sometimes they come to heal us, but other times they come to destroy us. And they are fickle and capricious and we don't know what they're going to do. And, they're and then we started to get the personalities. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, you know, Roxy's seductive. Roxy is beautiful and seductive. You know, she's Oxycontin. And if you fall for Roxy, you fall hard and she won't let you go. Yeah. Uh, with you running with your son, I wonder, surely you've heard from sets of parents and their children who've read the books together. Yes, I and I love hearing from parents and kids, you know, because what, what, what happens is a kid will read the book and then shove it under their parents' nose and say, you have to read this because I want to talk about this with you. And then the parents will come to me and talk to me about this conversation that they had about the book with their kid. And the comment that I get, you know, pretty, pretty often is a parent will come up to me and say, I never knew my kid thought so deeply. And that really makes me feel good to think that I, that I have brought that out in the kid and have brought out that relationship between them. Do you remember a book, a novel that really hooked you, you know, preteen? Preteen? Uh, it, would, it would have been Roald Dahl, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah. I remember reading that and that's when it occurred to me that you know, I mean, I remember seeing the movie, the original one, you know, with Gene Wilder, uh, you know, not not the creepy one with Johnny Depp, right, the right. original. And uh, and when I and then I read the, I read the book after and I absolutely love the book. And I remember thinking to myself, none of this existed until Roald Dahl thought of it. This these characters that have become part of our culture that everybody knows didn't even exist until he came up with it in his mind. And I remember thinking to myself, I want to do that. Uh, in middle school, Lord of the Rings, I had that same, that same feeling that Middle Earth felt so real. It felt like these, these books were windows into a world that was much larger than the pages of the books. And I said to myself, I want to be able to do that. So I always, you know, the, the, the books and authors that inspired me uh, were the ones that made me wish I could do it too. Finally, I have seen some uh, online, some experiences you've had with audiences. And you come on stage and you say, 
I don't necessarily want to tell you what I think you want to hear. I want to know what you want to hear. And it seems that relationship that you've developed with your readers on the page is what you want to take when you go to something like the True Lit Festival at Fayetteville Public Library. Yes, when I when I speak, most of the time I'm taking question and answer because, you know, people don't necessarily want to be spoken at, especially kids, you know, because then, you know, their their eyes glaze over and their minds start to wander. I want to engage them. And so I want to know what they want to hear about. And the questions that I'll get asked, sometimes I'll get asked, you know, the typical questions. Where do I get my ideas? How did I get started? But it means so much more when it's coming from the audience. And then every once in a while, I'll get asked a question that just blows me away and really challenges me to think. And it, it's always fresh. It's always fresh and it's always different. And, uh, and I, you know, I love traveling and speaking to audiences, both in the U.S. and, and around the world. Right now, I'm in, I'm in Zurich, Switzerland, speaking at the, uh, you know, the Zurich, Inter the, uh, Zurich International School and uh, the International School of, uh, of Zug and Luzern. And it's the same thing. I'm speaking to these kids. They're asking questions. And uh, it's just it's it's a relationship. Uh, and it's not and not just me talking at them. And you know, someday there's going to be a writer being interviewed by somebody and that writer will be asked, what book do you remember grabbing you? And they're going to say dry or they're going to say Roxy. You know, that's going to happen. You're having that effect that that author's had on you. And that's the dream, isn't it? That is the dream to be able to to know that something that you have written has affected people's lives and they remember they remember your story and it made a difference in their world. Neil Schusterman is the author of several books, including Challenger Deep, Roxy and the Sith Trilogy. He'll speak at the Fayetteville Public Library Tuesday night, October 17th, as part of the True Lit Festival. The talk taking place in the Walker Community Room is scheduled to start at six that night. No registration is required to attend, though. Please take note, seating is on a first-come, first-served basis. This is Ozarks at Large. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. A juvenile novel on sharecropping in Arkansas was written at the request of Arkansas school children. Students at Yarbrough School near Blyville wrote popular author Lois Lenski to write about them after hearing a broadcast of her speaking about another of her books. Lenski accepted an invitation to come to Arkansas to learn about cotton picking, and she later said, I entered another world. I donned a sunbonnet, pulled a nine-foot sack, and picked cotton with the children. I achieved a sunburned nose, a crick in my back, and about half as much cotton as the average 10-year-old picker. Lenski's 1949 book, Cotton in My Sack, depicted a sharecropping family through the eyes of the oldest child, Joanda, and featured chapters titled School, Saturday in Town, A Merry Christmas, The Library Book, and A New Year, collectively exploring the family's lives. While modern readers may find the book simplistic, Lenski's realistic writing of marginalized people's lives was innovative at the time. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. As Northwest Arkansas grows, so does the opportunity for new kinds of businesses to open. This week's I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast highlights one of those new types of businesses, Ozark Compost and Swap. Host Randy Wilburn talked with the founder, Ricky Ludeman, and Tina Flakowitz, operations manager. The concept is simple. Clients sign up for weekly or bi-weekly compost pickup. Ozark Compost and Swap provides the buckets. The episode digs deeper into the business model, and in this excerpt, we learn more about the why behind the business. Ricky told Randy he decided to start a compost operation in that most unusual year, 
2020. And honestly, I think I just wanted to do something more and better for the world. I think we all have a lot of the same visions. Mine was, you know, environment. How can we do better for the environment? And yeah, so I was living in Denver at the time. We used a service very similar to Ozark Compost and we wanted to be back in Northwest Arkansas. So I thought bringing this type of service to Northwest Arkansas would bring a lot of value. So yeah. So you decided this would be the business to start up. This would be the business. So yeah, I left my job and yeah, did this full time. So about a year and a half now. So I think, yeah, 2020, the idea started to come alive. And I think into the 2021, we jumped and committed and started Ozark Compost. That's cool. Now, had before that, had you had any other entrepreneurial experiences? Zero. Zero. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, total okay. noob here. So man, man, I love I love hearing stories like that. You know, and it's it's funny because we we talk about people here on this podcast. It's it is the intersection of business, culture, entrepreneurship, and life here in the Ozarks. And you know, you actually tick off a number of those boxes with your business. But I, I always find it interesting when people decide to pivot from nine to five jobs. And I'm using air quotes here. You can't see it on the podcast, but I mean, a lot of people have nine to five jobs, but have dreams and desires of one day starting a business. Did you actually have a desire to do that at one point in time? Or was this more born out of, hey, you know what? I got all this extra time on my hands. The pandemic is what it is. And so let me let me think about what I might want to do next. Yeah, you know, really, that's a good question. I'm slightly stumped. No, I had no intentions of being an entrepreneur. Again, it was just like, I think I can bring more value to the world. And I think I can, I think I have at least called the mental mindset to entrepreneur. And I think too, it started reading in 2020. I'm very thankful for, I guess, 2020 in those regards is started reading a lot on, I don't know, finances, other entrepreneurs. And then I had just one day it just sparked and, you know, I wanted to work remote in Northwest Arkansas for the, the job I was working at. And then they said no. So from there, it was just like, okay, we're full on entrepreneur and we're going to do this. And so, yeah, I don't think I ever had any visions or wants to do it sure, until, sure. yeah, until about, yeah, 2020. It's like, let's just, it's, let's just do this. Why not? Right. You decided to burn the boats and uh, <laughs> totally burn the boats, <laughs> completely burn the boats. So, oh yeah. man, I love that. Well, and the reason why I had you just kind of share that is because, you know, I think a lot of times we do things when we see other people do them, right? Tina, why don't you kind of share just a little bit about yourself and tell us a little bit about this operation here? Yeah, sure. So I'm originally from the East Coast of Maryland. I grew up in a pretty small beach town that kind of blows up in the summer. And so I think just being from a beach type of environment definitely instilled some appreciation for natural spaces. And then I moved down to Austin, Texas when I was 19 and pretty much right away got into environmental organizing. I was with a canvas group. And so we knocked on doors looking to change environmental policies locally and statewide. And that just very much instilled my want for change. But then it also just having so many conversations every day with all sorts of different people. It just like really instilled in me how much common ground we have as people. And, you know, I think at Ozark Compost, we like to say that we're keeping the natural state natural. Sure. And I think common ground and the environment have to be linked because it is there. I haven't met a single person here, no matter where they stand politically, that doesn't enjoy the nature of Northwest Arkansas. Oh, it's to me, it's the fact that we don't have to go too far Mm -hmm. out of our backyards to experience the beauty that is Northwest Arkansas. There's plenty of backyards that have that beauty. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And so that was, you know, I've, I've had the, the want to, you know, help the environment and do my part to protect it. 
working in nonprofits for a long time, you often sacrifice your financial gains for those kind of like, you know, the other benefits you get out of nonprofit work. And then when I actually, the guys at Biodesic who are, they do really great regenerative like landscaping and they're the biologists that we use to help kind of track the quality of our, our products. Sure. I made friends with one of them when I first moved here and he ended up linking me up with Ricky. And then it just seemed like a really fantastic way to help the environment, but also actually make a living. Yeah. And so that was like a no brainer for me to jump right in. And, you know, Ozark Compost Swap, our big goal is just sustainability. We want to be sustainable. We want to make it easy and fun and convenient for other people to be sustainable. Yeah. And it all starts just a route of diverting food waste. Once you can divert the food waste, then it lets us go through all of our processes. We end up with these worm castings as our end final product. And then they have a whole other string of, you know, environmental benefits. And so it's really full circle, lets us just like keep that, that vision of sustainability full circle. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because when you think of it, it's like there is gold in the trash. Yeah. We just don't know how to extract it. Right. Mm -hmm. You guys have figured that out with what you're doing here at Ozark Compost and Swap. And, you know, when you told me kind of the whole, when you broke it down in terms of how you operate and what you do and how you serve the needs of your clients. It's a full circle, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, we talk about the circle of life, but it's a full circle event, right? Where it's like people buy the food, there's food waste that comes from that food. If you save that food waste and then you guys pick up that food waste, you're able to take it and compost or have it composted. And then you're able to take the result of that compost, which means it doesn't end up in a landfill somewhere. You're able to take that and then feed these 200,000 plus worms that are so hungry and they have an insatiable appetite that, you know, they're constantly, you know, chomping at the bit to eat the next round of food that you provide them. And then they provide through their own waste, this casting, which is kind of like the, the manna, if you will, of, <laughs> of, of soil yeah. that provides or gives you the ability to grow healthier plants, healthier vegetables, to create healthier soil, period, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I I certainly want to get into the science of it a little bit because I don't think people can really appreciate it until you've seen it. And and you've shown me, you know, what to the layperson looks like dirt. But then when you really get it under a microscope, it's like, no way, this is not just any dirt. Yeah, it's definitely not just dirt. (laughs) (laughs) So, Ricky, you want to add something to that? Yeah, there's a lot to be said about the castings, but you know, our big thing here is a healthy soil is a living soil. Yeah. And, you know, so much, we talk a lot about nutrients, which are obviously vital to plants, but we neglect to talk about microbes and life within that soil and the symbiotic relationship that's actually formed between a plant and microbes is honestly crazy. They, you know, they work together. The microbiology gives the plant exactly what the plant needs. A lot of times we think we know what the plant needs where no, the plant knows what the plant needs and the microbiology help the plant get exactly what it needs. So we see a lot better quality in soil health and obviously our plants. And one other really cool aspect as you know, there's a, a lot more push in regenerative farming. Yeah. Can you just for the audience, just tell them a little bit about what regenerative farming is? Yeah. So regenerative farming, easiest way to put it is like no tilling. We don't want to disrupt our soil. We want to have cover crops. And really what that all leads up to is just having a living soil. We're trying to add microbiology back to the soil where the castings we have already has this, you know, great microbiology in it. So along with regenerative farming and healthy soils is besides having, you know, a better crop, better plants, better yields, 
is we also create carbon sequestering. Okay. Yeah. So what's cool about this is a certain percentage of carbon dioxide goes to our plant. A certain percentage comes out as oxygen for us to breathe, which is really important. Yeah. The remainder of the carbon actually gets stored in the soil. So the microbiology is able to store that for us in the soil so we can sequester a large amount of carbon within our own soil just with healthy living soils. So it's powerful stuff. You can hear the entire latest episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas with host Randy Wilburn talking to Ricky Ludeman and Tina Falkowitz from Ozark Compost and Swap at IamNorthwestArkansas.com or KUAF.com or by subscribing to the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast through any major podcast distributor. We share excerpts of the latest episodes on most Tuesday editions of Ozarks at Large. It is Membership Appreciation Week at KUAF. It's a time where we thank you for keeping us doing what we do day in and day out here at KUAF. And all week long, we're giving away some prizes to listeners, randomly drawn. Uh, Listeners who financially contribute to KUAF. Our winner today, Alexandria Purifoy-Ratliff who lives in Fayetteville. Thank you so much, Alexandria, for following us on social media. You can find us on Instagram, KUAF underscore radio, and uh, keep up with everything we do there. We share stories, national stories. We share stories of Ozarks at Large and uh, lots of other content we do here at KUAF. Friday night at Black Apple on M Avenue in Springdale, we're going to have a membership appreciation party. It will include all sorts of fun. It's from 6 until 8. There will also be some trivia with a chance to win prizes. And every day on Ozarks at Large, We're telling you one of the questions that's going to be asked that night from one of the five categories. Yesterday, it was 1973 because it's the 50th anniversary of KUAF. Here's some NPR trivia. This will be asked Friday night, so Mm -hmm. you're going to have a heads up. What was NPR's first regularly scheduled program? I actually know the answer to this one. All things considered. That is correct. So now you have an advantage by listening. We'll give you another question for Friday night's 6 to 8 p.m. membership appreciation party at Black Apple on tomorrow's show. The military wing of Hamas has threatened to execute an Israeli hostage for each Israeli airstrike without warning that targets civilians in Gaza. For a man with family missing, that threat is too much to contemplate. I think I'm just choosing to ignore this. I think that those hostages are the most precious thing that Hamas has right now, and I think that they will keep them safe. The families of missing Israelis on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen to Morning Edition tomorrow, starting at 5. You can discover all the podcasts produced in association with KUAF at our website, KUAF.com. Not only are there daily podcasts of Ozarks at Large available, but you can also find episodes for Undisciplined, a co-production of KUAF and the University of Arkansas African and African-American Studies Program, and Resilient Black Women, a podcast addressing mental health. Learn more about all of our podcasts at KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. The Smithsonian exhibit Voices and Votes, Democracy in America, can be viewed on the campus of John Brown University through October 20th. The night before the exhibit opened to the public, JBU, KUAF, and Ozarks at Large partnered for a panel discussion 
about voting. And we're sharing some of the discussion from that night on our program before the exhibition leaves the JBU campus. The panel included Delia Hawk, state representative for District 17, Dan Bennett, associate professor of political science and assistant director of the Center for Faith and Flourishing at JBU, Chris Seawood, corporate and institutional giving manager at Theater Squared, and treasurer of the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council, and Yamil Tenorio, an integrated marketing communications major at JBU, who has served as copy editor for the JBU Lantern. I asked panelists for their thoughts about the process of voting, and Professor Dan Bennett answered first. You'll hear him refer to comments Chris Seawood had made earlier in the evening regarding the inability for several populations to be able to vote in the United States for decades. Veteran congressman was talking to a new congressman on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and this new congressman comes in with uh, a lot of uh, substantive policy ideas and is really passionate about uh, making big changes through the law. And the veteran congressman, uh, not necessarily cynical, but a little more realistic about uh, his experience in Washington, says, well, look, at the end of the day, if you focus on the substance, but you ignore the process, Mm -hmm. you're gonna lose, right? And as a veteran, I'm gonna be much more focused on the process, because if I control the process, it doesn't matter what your substantive views are, right? The rules matter. So certainly, if we look to history, and I think, you know, Chris, uh, getting this conversation off in an important way, for, for a lot of our history, it's the process that has not only enhanced or impaired, but really uh, structured our representative democracy and government. Chris? Yeah, um, I think definitely ways to enhance are any way that we can expand freedoms for um, citizens in this country to have access to the ballot is a plus. Um, I think we saw that, um, at least an example for me, is clearly during COVID. Now, those were unprecedented circumstances. We were in a worldwide pandemic. Uh, It wasn't as easy for people just to go to um, their regular uh, polling sites to vote. Um, So we had to take extra measures, extra steps um, uh, for folks to ensure that their votes were counted. But I think what that also showed was the capability for us as a country, as a government, and as citizens um, to um, cast our votes in responsible ways and for more citizens to gain access to the vote. Um, Now, it's a whole other argument, and I know we still are having those arguments on security. Those are the things I think the evidence clearly shows that it was a secure election And I think the technology is there to ensure that we have uh, secure elections moving forward. Um, We are in the most technologically advanced state we probably will ever be in. Technology is only getting better um, for us as a country and a world. So um, enhancements are only, in my opinion, going to make things that much better for citizens to gain access to the ballot. So therefore, we should be, as governments, um, working to make laws that make access to the ballot that much easier for citizens rather than restrictive, um, i.e., um, I mean, there are a host of ex- examples, you know, taking 
um, mailing boxes away and closing down polling sites, et cetera. Um, these are some of my soapbox issues. I'm sorry if I get on those. Um, but um, I think for a representative society to truly be representative, we have to find ways to ensure that citizens have ways to exercise their vote and not the other. And I thank you, Chris, mm -hmm. and I appreciate the um, reminder. Again, um, my grandmother was born in the late 1800s. Women didn't have the right to vote till 1919. I don't know if she ever voted in her life. Mm. Um, my mother did, but she didn't drive till she was in her 40s. So a lot has changed in the last 120 years. But to your point, I think the last 60 years probably is the, the time when we've really had the most access for the most people. Every person matters. Um, the, general fourth, uh, the 94th General Assembly we just finished this year had over 20 election integrity bills. So we were, you talked about who can vote and how, what the process is, is just as important. Why did we need? 20 plus election integrity bills when we want to make sure, and that was part of the reason we want to make sure it's secure. I had four of those bills. Uh, the first one that I did was uh, to allow absentee votes to any person prevented from voting due to an observance of a religious discipline or holiday during the 12 hours before election day. Now why was that important? Well, some people, election day falls on a religious observance or a religious discipline and during the hours of which they can't get to the election to vote. That's why absentee voting is important to allow that. Then how do you make sure that absentee ballot is that person's actual vote and so on. So there was an, a ballot tabulator bill was the second one. And we had one county where it was very sparse population and they would open up a polling place, early voting, two weeks usually before the day of election, and they would, people would go and cast their ballot, and then the person would take that ballot box, put it in their truck, drive it to their house, and leave it in the garage, which was really just a carport kind of thing. <laughs> not secure, not sealed, go to the next polling station the next day, collect the ballots, take them to the next voting station. There was no security, no line of making sure those boxes were sealed every day, taken to a secure location. So the process is always evolving and so on, um, but trying to make sure that it's equitable for everyone and making sure they all get there. And last but not least, I would just say um, my grandchildren that are here at JBU, they're fifth generation immigrants. Uh, my husband's grandmother came here from Holland in the early 1900s and you know those are kind of things I mentioned how women just got the vote in 1919. You mentioned F uh, Native Americans, even the access for all people to vote. Those are always major issues and something we should always be very del uh, vigilant about. You mean I want to ask you because you mentioned you sent in an absentee ballot? Yes. All right. And, and so for your entire voting career, you've known about early voting and things like yes. that, as opposed to just the election day. I wonder what your thoughts are about the ease it ha you've had for voting and maybe conversations you've had with your peers. Yes. So I have been here since 2021 and all three and 
the previous two years and this third year, I have had to do an absentee ballot. Um, I, there is no way that I'd be able to make t my polling place in Hershey <laughs> through the 20-hour drive to get up there and then come back 20 hours before missing my 8 a.m. work-study hour. And so I could not, I, so I haven't done a physical uh, polling place other than one primary a few months ago. And so just I have, I have had the privilege and the appreciation to just have the ability to just take something that I have just been given just because I am here in this moment right now as a, as a student here. And I, uh, I might forget about it when it's spring break or you know, if it's summertime, but come fall, October, November, I don't take, the, I don't take voting for granted. Emil Tenorio is a student at John Brown University, and he was a panelist last month for a discussion about voting and democracy. That conversation took place on the JBU campus the night before the public opening for the traveling Smithsonian exhibit, Voices and Votes, Democracy in America. It's on the JBU campus. You can view it through October 20th. We also heard from State Representative Delia Hawk, Chris Seawood with the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council, and Dan Bennett, Associate Professor of Political Science and Assistant Director of the Center for Faith and Flourishing at JBU. We'll hear more from the panel throughout the rest of the month on Ozarks at Large. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, addressing the problems of food deserts in Arkansas. We've got food deserts in all 75 counties, and since the late 1990s, uh, we've seen a decrease in the number of grocery stores uh, that are open across the state. That story and much more on a Wednesday edition of our show. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today included Jack Travis, Daniel Carruth, Victoria Hernandez, Jacqueline Froelich, Mark Christ, and Randy Wilburn. Additional help from the new staff at Little Rock public radio we don't put this show together by ourselves that's for sure and even with all those names you just heard we still need you the supporters of public radio and thank you so much for doing that wherever you are and supporting your public radio station and it is membership appreciation week at kuaf so thank you uh listeners and supporters of ozarks at large and kuaf that's right you can join us on friday evening from six to eight at Black Apple, Apple on Emma Avenue in downtown Springdale. That's right. Uh, if you are as obsessed with trivia as Kyle Callums is, which it's very unlikely, <laughs> but just in case you are, uh, you don't have to be as obsessed with him. No. You can still come, enjoy yes. some enjoy some time with us, play some trivia, and uh, allow us to thank you for making it possible for us to do what we do here. I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks so much for being with us. We'll see you tomorrow. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College. With the Tuition Advantage Scholarship, admitted first-year students will pay no more in tuition at Hendricks than the published tuition and fees rate at their home state's public flagship university. Hendricks.edu slash tuition advantage for more. The Walmart Amp welcomes 17-time Grammy Award winner Sting on his My Songs Tour October 12th, performing songs from his career as a solo artist along with the chart-topping hits that brought him fame with the police, including Fields of Gold, Roxanne, Message in a Bottle, and many more. Tickets at amptickets.com.